Welcome to the third episode of the Phoenix Preacher Podcast. Uh, this is a really special podcast because this is the first one that uh, Chester, who you parked near in the background, Chester and I are doing with a brand new microphone. And this microphone was gifted to me this week. And even if it doesn't work, it's one of the most beautiful pieces of equipment I've ever seen. And I'll use it anyway. But my hunch is, is that uh, it's going to make everything sound a whole lot better uh, than it has in the past. And I'm very, very grateful. And I just like to look at this thing. It's beautiful. Page one today, we're going to talk a little bit about Paige Patterson and the Southern Baptist Convention. Word came tonight uh, when I was done working on the blog, trying to get it back up and running, that Paige Patterson had been terminated and that uh, all of the perks that they gave him when they quasi-terminated him the first time were being revoked. And so what you have now are a lot of people talking about it's time to move on, it's time to heal. Now that we've taken care of this problem, we're, we're going to be fine, let's go. And I'm here to tell you that that ain't going to happen. Here's the thing you have to understand about these organizations. And I've talked about this over and over again on the blog. These organizations have a DNA. And that DNA is it's just as if uh, your parent had a proclivity to uh, some disease, some ailment, something wrong with them. It gets passed down generation to generation to generation. It's the same thing with these church organizations. And the thing that you really have to understand is that they may have gotten rid of Paige Patterson, but they haven't gotten rid of his disciples. They haven't gotten rid of his fans. They haven't gotten rid of the very great number of uh, pastors in the organization that were discipled either by him or by one of his disciples. So these attitudes are still very much alive in the SBC. And it's going to take a lot of time and a lot of intentionality, if that's even a word. I like it, so I used it. It's going to take a lot of intentionality to root out all of the things that Patterson uh, represented that caused him to make this dramatic fall. And that's, it's just the way you can argue all you want. I have had way too much experience with another organization that's not a denomination, if you ask them. And you can see how from the founding of the movement, quote unquote, it's still a movement, even though it's not going anywhere at this point. Anyway, you, you see this at the beginning with the founders of the movement. It's moved down very quickly to the first generation. The generations that follow learn that this is the way we think. This is the way we act. These are the things we do. So you can remove one of them, but you still have a whole bunch of others that think just like them. So this isn't the end of the process for the Southern Baptist Convention. This is the beginning of the process. And we will see if they, in leadership there, 
decide to continue the process, I, I wouldn't put a ton of money on it. But that's the only way that this will change. We're on to page two. On page two today, I want to talk a little bit about the immigration issue. You know, I've, I've done a lot of controversial stuff over the years. And we've been in major magazines and newspapers uh, with those controversies. And when there's always been a lot of uh, uh, clamor on the blog when those come up. But one of the things that never happened is I never lost readers. Uh, whether they agreed with me or disagreed with me, uh, the people were still there. They were still engaging and still part of this larger community. The only time I've ever lost readers is when I started writing about immigration. And it's not that we lost a couple people. We lost about half of our readership for a while. And I'm really concerned that especially as things get worse on the border, as more misinformation is spread by both advocates of immigration reform like myself and people that are mainly concerned about uh, border security and or there is a group that just doesn't want different people coming in. My concern is, is that we are able to have this conversation about these things as family, especially the family of God. When I look at these issues, and I've spent 10 years just buried in this, to me it's a moral issue. It's an issue about hurting people, about desperate people, and how the Bible tells me that I have to respond to people in those kinds of situations. And what I want to somehow start to have a conversation about is why there are probably more people in the church today uh, on this quote-unquote evangelical side that don't believe that there is a biblical imperative for us to act with much grace and love toward refugees and immigrants, migrants. Uh, there, there is something here that's missing in the conversation. When I read what the Old Testament says about caring for the alien amongst you, when I read what Jesus says about who is your neighbor? And if someone is your neighbor, then the, the new law of love is to love them as you love yourself. And it's with that understanding that I look at these situations, understanding as well that there's not a perfect solution. To me, this is as much of a moral issue as abortion. And I've had a lot of people get mad at me for advocating for what I believe is a moral position on immigration who also get very angry at me because they don't think that I'm uh, advocating reform of abortion laws. Well, to me, the only difference is, is we're dealing with unborn people and people that are born. And some of these people that are seeking asylum Sending them back where they came from is a death sentence. 
I am not in any way, shape, or form saying I am more godly, uh, holier, nicer, better than anyone. What I'm trying to do is express to you what my biblical understanding is so that you will give me your biblical understanding, if it differs, that we might have a conversation. I am tired of the binary thinking that you're either on the left or the right, you're either for or against, and those thing, those two sides are at war continually. And this war is not going to produce solutions. It's going to produce more war. I miss a lot of the people that used to uh, participate on the blog that left because uh, they didn't like my stance on this. I would love to engage with these people. I would love to engage with you. If you're listening to this now and you're one of those people that just doesn't want to hear what I have to say or to write about immigration, who disagrees with me that this is a moral issue, that we have some biblical guidelines that we can use to establish our positions, I'd love to interact with you. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to be able to demonstrate on our blog that we can have an irenic conversation looking for solutions that doesn't completely satisfy both sides, but brings forth something that is useful, that is gracious, and reflects biblical ethics. So if you're one of those folks, comment on this. We're on to page three. Page three of the podcast this week features Calvary Chapel cat killers. Now, any of you that have read the blog, read my books, uh, know that I am a cat owner and a cat lover. So this story hits real close to home. This is about the ninth or tenth time I've tried to record this segment because I, it upsets me a lot. So the story goes like this. Calvary Chapel, Bitterroot Valley, or Bitterroot Valley Calvary Chapel, I'm not sure how they refer to themselves, pastored by one Dale Lewis in Montana, had a problem. The problem was that they dug a sand pit for youth activities, probably stuff like volleyball. And the neighborhood cats, coons, and possums were defecating in their sand pit. So they began to live trap these animals. Now, I'm not sure why they were live trapping them, because when they trapped the neighbor lady's cat, they shot it. Killed the cat. And now there are other people in the neighborhood wondering if the animals that they thought were missing, their beloved pets might have met the same fate at the hands of uh, the Calvary Chapel Bitterroot Valley boys. In, in, in what world is it okay, Christian, neighborly, to kill someone else's cat? To kill a pet that's part of a family that means a lot to that family? And because it has inconvenienced you in some way, you don't look for other solutions, but you kill it. Is, is this like a, a new evangelistic method? You know, crush people and then 
give them the gospel to pick them back up. Doesn't make any sense, but neither does killing other people's pets. And so there's not a whole lot I can say about this, except uh, Pastor Lewis, I think you have a responsibility to your community and especially to your neighbors to inquire among your employees how many of other people's pets have been killed and then go uh, share what the church has done to them. And, and the, the only other thing that I would say, Pastor Lewis, is that when you bow your head and you pray tonight and your head's on the pillow and you're saying those last prayers before bedtime, thank God in heaven. Thank him with all your heart that that wasn't my cat. On page four, hey, it's been a rough week, hasn't it? Uh, if you follow the blog at all, you know we've had lots of technical difficulties. Uh, very frustrating. Uh, very difficult to fix. Offline, family problems, health problems, financial problems. Uh, not just mine, but lots of people around me. And just overwhelming difficulties. And sometimes in some of these situations, it seems like they've gone on and on and on and on. And people lose hope. And uh, people look for reasons for hope. And so I, I want to read you a familiar psalm. It's, it's one that you probably know, but it's also one that I found very helpful this week. And it might be helpful for you too. So let's, let's read Psalm 42 together. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you downcast on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. And my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and Mount Miser. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Sometimes we wonder, and our friends will assist us in wondering where our God is. Why hasn't he intervened? What's going on? Have I done something? 
Why does my trouble go on and on and on? And I'm going to tell you folks, there really isn't an answer usually for those things. But there's an answer to how we react inside these situations. And that is very simply to do two things that I see in this psalm. Number one, David's honest to God. He's admitting, I'm not praising you. I'm wondering what's going on. I'm really unhappy. This ain't working for me. Where are you? He's honest about how he feels about the circumstances that he's in. So often in the church, we feel this obligation to fake it, to pretend like everything's okay when really nothing's okay at all. And I'm, I'm telling you something, folks, that's sin. Because God wants to know where you're at. God is going to touch you in those places where you are able to be honest with him. And he can handle it. He can handle it just like any other parent when a child comes to them and says, I'm hurting. He's there to listen. Tell him how it hurts. Tell him where it hurts. Tell him why it hurts. And tell him that you long to praise him again. David's being honest. We, we like to make these biblical characters into little plastic saints that are always praising God and always giving forth the sacrifice of praise amongst their trials and tribulations. Evidently, that didn't apply to David at this point. And sometimes it's not going to apply to you. Be honest. The other thing that I want you to see is that the thing that keeps David going is hope. He's instructing his soul. He's instructing his heart and instructing his mind to hope in God. And in that hope, he is assured that when God does come, he will praise him again. He knows there's going to be a day, someday, when God will have done something that causes David to break out in praise one more time. It's not over. So today, if you're going through some stuff, if it's been a rough week for you too, tell God where it hurts. Be honest about it how you're feeling. Tell your heart to hope. Hey, I understand hope deferred makes the heart sick. But hope is your inheritance as a child of God. Hang on to it. Instruct yourself and your heart, your soul, and your mind to hope, believing that someday soon, you're going to break out in this kind of praise to God again. That's it for this week's Phoenix Preacher Podcast. Thank you, as always, for listening. And we will talk to you next week.